Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And welcome back to the House of Pod. My name is Kave Hoda. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Today, we're going to talk about the worsening humanitarian crisis in Gaza that has escalated since the tragic events of October 7th. And we're going to discuss some of the catastrophic health-related issues, both, I think, immediate and more long-term that the Palestinian people are facing. You know, because I wanted to cover something light and certainly wouldn't make anyone unhappy with me to help me do that i brought my emotional support clevelander cleaver ryan marino ryan what do people <laughs> what are people from cleveland called uh i don't think i can say that on on air this, this is uncensored <laughs> <laughs> no um clevelander i guess clevelander uh, yeah. that works but i've also brought on somebody ryan who is uh probably not probably absolutely more knowledgeable on the subject than myself. Um, her name is Amira Nimrawi. She is a Palestinian social impact specialist who has worked for the Palestinian Medical Relief Society for uh, you know, five years or so. She has a background in healthcare and public health, and her specialties are emergency response, primary healthcare, and women's health in conflict-affected areas. Uh, Amira, uh, may I call you Amira? Yes, please, yes. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, first of all, can I just ask, what um, what is a social impact specialist? It's a good question. Uh, I think primarily what I what I you know would be focused on is uh, essentially ensuring that any of our programs that we implement have the impact that we strive to to achieve. And so essentially, my role would be to 
um, put measures in place before we implement any of our programs uh, to monitor them, to evaluate them, and to make that analysis at the end of each program to then be able to understand whether we did have the impact that we were hoping to have and how we can improve that impact. So it's a way of just making sure that essentially we're not just putting band-aids literally and figuratively on um, problems and to make sure that we're actually working towards a more sustainable solution. So that's essentially my role in a nutshell. I It makes sense. Actually, I almost feel like, Ryan, I feel like in a way you're sort of a social impact specialist as well. You know, when you're like looking at states and cities and their like policies toward people with substance abuse uh, or from a medical perspective as well. I think, Ryan, there you go. Can you add that? Maybe you can add this to your title as well. I think it works for you. <laughs> yeah, I'm very amateur, though. I mean, this sounds pretty legit. No, Amira is like the real deal. Um, yeah. <laughs> Amira, can you tell us about the Palestinian Medical Relief Society? Yes, I would love to. So basically, the Palestinian Medical Relief Society was founded uh, 44 years ago by Dr. Mustafa Barghouti, who is uh, Palestinian from uh, originally from Jerusalem and Ramallah in the West Bank. And uh, essentially, he and some of his colleagues noted that there were some major gaps in the healthcare system. And so they put together the Palestinian Medical Relief Society to start to address uh, the gaps in the healthcare system. And at that time, there wasn't really, um, there wasn't really a, a sort of government structure to the healthcare system, and especially we, when we're looking at primary healthcare. And so they essentially ultimately built the, the, the public health system. And we continue to do that today. So our mission is always to, we're striving to, ensure that the most vulnerable groups and demographics in Palestine have access to quality health care and, um, you know, trying to, to bridge those gaps in whatever ways that we can. I think that the heartbeat of our work and maybe what we're most well known for, uh, especially outside of Palestine, is our mobile clinic network because our um, work uh, spreads across 600 different communities all across Palestine, we're actually the largest and leading Palestinian-run medical organization on the ground in Palestine. And we work in the West Bank, in East Jerusalem and in Gaza. And it's quite unique and special that we have that position because it means that there is a continuity of care that we ensure across Palestine. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're looking at a policy and advocacy um, perspective and that work that we do on, on that front with the Ministry, Ministry of Health um, strengthening certain policies, for example, women's health and youth health, we've been very instrumental in. Um, so in a nutshell, that's who we are. Can you tell us a little bit about your background in healthcare? Yeah, sure. So I, I started off as a nurse in Australia. So I'm Palestinian, but I grew up in Australia. Um, my family is originally from Khalil, from Hebron area in the West Bank. And then I fell into corporate sort of um, within the insurance industry, uh, still connected to the public health and epidemiological aspect of the insurance industry, essentially. Um, and then I moved from corporate into uh, the not-for-profit space. So that's when I started to do my MBA and I decided to specialize in social impact and sort of go back to my more altruistic roots that say and connect the dots between nursing, corporate, and then the not-for-profit world. And I set off to Palestine, which was a promise I made myself the first time I went to Palestine at 19 years of age was that I would commit to helping on a health, you know, within the health industry and sector there somehow. 
and I volunteered for the summer with the Palestinian Medical Relief Society. And that's they asked me then to come on board after that um, from a program perspective. But when I was volunteering, I was in the mobile clinics and I was going around to these villages and doing the work with the teams as a nurse, essentially. And um, then I moved into a role where I'm looking more at this sort of program design and the impact in terms of, you know, how can we maximize the impact that we're having and on a long-term perspective, how can we, we deepen that? So, yeah. yeah. So that's my, my background. I started off as a nurse. Well, that's a really great journey. I, I think you know, I've been stalling long enough. I think we need to get into the really difficult part of this discussion, which is what's happening right now in Gaza. Uh, and you're, correct me, because I'm sure you have better information than I do, but it appears that over 1.9 million people have been displaced at this point, at least. 1.4 million of them are staying in overcrowded shelters, and they're places where there's huge amounts of people concentrated into one small area that clearly was not designed with the proper infrastructure for that sort of thing. It makes it impossible to care for you know certain basic needs. Uh, there's one shower for every 4,500 people. There's one toilet for every 220. Clean water remains scarce. Can you start by giving us sort of an overview of the current healthcare crisis in Gaza? Yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult because the word crisis, I don't think really adequately describes what is happening and I think that for most of us and even the people that are there on the ground we can't really begin to imagine the extent of that crisis you know that's partly to do with the fact that the people there on the ground are cut off from each other and they're also cut off from the outside world so there's a communications issue um, with the the blackouts that keep occurring um, from the Israeli side cutting off the communication so you know, even within Gaza, it's really difficult for the teams and other healthcare workers and, and the sort of sector to be able to communicate adequately from each other. I mean, the north part of Gaza is completely cut off um, and not just from a communications perspective, but also from a medical supplies perspective. So any of the supplies that do manage to get in, and that's very little, and we'll probably get to that a little bit later, is just there's no way for it to reach uh, the northern areas of Gaza. So to begin to sort of understand and give an overview, I, I just want to caveat that what the numbers that we're looking at and the information that we're looking at is probably um, somewhat less than what, what the extent of, you know, of, of the situation is. Because the other issue is that obviously reporting in this context is very difficult now. And it's really hard um, for the teams on the ground to capture the data and to be able to log that data adequately. Um, but, you know, just as you said, about 1.93 million people have been displaced. I mean, it's not about 90 percent of Gaza's population now have been you know, completely displaced. Uh, we're looking at about 19,000. I mean, I think it's now over 20,000 uh, fatalities with 10,000 children being killed. And that's including the numbers that they suspect are under the rubble because there's thousands of people that are actually missing and they're assuming that they're trapped under the rubble. Um, you know, we're looking at around 60,000 injuries and those injuries range from, you know, varying degrees. Uh, as you said, the sort of the close proximity and the the the, um, the living quarters and the living arrangements are so densely populated and extreme. And I think it's important to highlight that 
Gaza before the 7th of October was recognized as one of the most densely populated areas on earth. And now, you know, more than half of that area and, and most of the people within that area in the northern and central parts of Gaza have been pushed to the southern parts of Gaza. So that area has now become even more dense without adequate housing, without adequate sanitation, without water. I mean, just on a personal personal note, I have friends and family that are hosting more than 60 people in their homes. Um, and that's in the that's in the homes. And then you have the shelters on top of that where, um, as you said, you know, that there's maybe I, I've seen statistics worse than the 200 people per toilet in some shelters, because depending on the size, there's 700 people to one toilet. Um, so you can start to imagine on a public health sort of perspective how we're, we're in the, the winter months now. It is cold, despite what some of, you know, some people have tried to say that it's in the desert. No, Gaza is cold. It's raining. The shelters are leaking. Um, people are cramped in together beyond what anyone could sort of imagine. Mm. There's not enough sanitation or water. So, and the toilet situation obviously is really extreme. So we are starting to see a proliferation of infectious diseases at a rate that is extremely scary. So you have over 120,000 registered respiratory um, uh, infections, uh, almost the same number of diarrheal infections with uh, approximately half of those being children under five years of age, which obviously is extremely dangerous, especially when we don't have uh, IV <laughs> to hydrate and we, let alone water, clean, you know, drinking water. Those diarrheal infections are occurring, obviously, because of the lack of clean drinking water. People are being forced to drink the most um, horrific, you know, sort of from the most horrific sources of water, um, including wells or just pools of water that they manage to capture. I mean, even the rainwater they're, they're drinking is not clean because obviously you've got dust and particles and you've got chemicals from the bombs that that have dropped sort of in that atmosphere that's then coming back down. So... Um, yeah, it's, I mean, I can keep going, but, you know, even just that on a, on a superficial level, it's, it's very extreme. Yeah. I think we're going to have to talk a little bit more about some of these illnesses, the diarrheal illness in a little bit more detail, but it is, it's amazing. It's like, no matter how bad you think it is, it always seems to be a little bit worse in reality. It's just amazing. Ryan. Yeah. yeah that's, I'm sorry. It, I interrupted you. I mean, I, I've heard a lot of these reports about how these infections are spreading. And, and certainly, I mean, the conditions are horrific and rampant I mean, rife, I guess, for infections. Do we have an accurate idea of kind of how many people are sick right now? Because I know the health infrastructure as well is kind of gone. Yeah, so I would say that, that the numbers are, are somewhat reduced. So the numbers that we're seeing are definitely lower than what is actually happening on the ground because of that reporting um, system and capacity. It's, you know, it's really hard for them to be able to capture and understand entirely what's happening. And there are certain areas, uh, geographical areas that are completely cut off from communication. So they're not able to feed through that information as well. Um, on top of the fact that you have a primary healthcare system, I mean, if we just look at the the hospital system, it's barely existing. Um, and then you have a primary healthcare system that is completely under immense strain because that host hospital system has 
essentially crumbled or been, you know, been forced to, to just fall to pieces. Um, so there are many people that are not able to be seen by healthcare professionals because, because of that pressure and because of that shortage. And so for sure, those numbers are going to be um, lower than what the reality is. Just talk about the hospitals a little bit more. So since the 7th, October, uh, the number of functioning hospitals I've read in Gaza has dropped from 36 to 18. Of that, three are providing the most basic first aid, if, if anything, at this point. And some of them are providing partial services here and there. Pretty much all the hospitals and clinics are there are providing services that are well above their means. To my understanding, there's really two hospitals in southern Gaza at this point, the Nasser Medical Complex and the European Gaza Hospital, or they're at least the two main ones. And it sounds like they are well over their capacity. Can you tell us a little bit or give us a little perspective on what's happening inside those hospitals right now, those two main hospitals in southern Gaza? Yeah, so... So the hospitals that are considered to be, so there are no hospitals now that are considered to be fully functioning. And of the hospitals that are functioning, they've been categorized as either partially functioning, extremely limited capacity, um, or there's two field hospitals, sorry, that are sort of considered fully functional. However, they're fully functional without adequate supplies. So I would argue that they're they're technically not really fully functional by our standards. So the standards, you know, of of the US, the UK, Australia, etc. Mm -hmm. um, so the hospitals in in the southern parts of Gaza are well over 200% capacity. Um, they don't there's the, the number of supply trucks that are coming in are severely um, just inadequate. So it, it's it's really hard to find the right words that carry the the weight of um, you know what's necessary to be able to convey exactly what's happening, but it's extremely inadequate what's coming through. If we look at the trucks from a humanitarian perspective, before the seventh of October, it was daily around five hundred trucks. Now it's less than fifty, um, and even then on, and, and that's not just medical supplies. So the hospitals that are there in the southern parts, I mean, they're still under attack, right? So they're not able to function. 100% because they're at 206% capacity. They don't have enough supplies coming in. The staff aren't able to eat or hydrate themselves properly, let alone, you know, have that then funnel down to the, the patients. There are patients everywhere, you know, on the floor, whatever space can be taken up is taken up. The hospitals are still being attacked and bombed. So the maternity ward and the, the children's ward of the Al-Nasad Hospital was bombed just a few days ago. Um, a lot of the time they are encircled by tanks as well. And, uh, you know, even just from a primary healthcare perspective, our clinics in the southern parts in Khan Yunus, for example, for days have also been encircled by tanks. And people, health staff are fearful to be able to go out and actually uh, treat their patients and, and even just to see their patients because not only is it a risk to their life, they can then sort of attract attention to their patients. So it's extremely difficult. And, and a lot of the doctors that have are there on the ground working are just at best were a first aid station. And even then that's becoming really difficult because of the lack of supplies and the amount of pressure that is on the health system. And I don't just mean the physical infrastructure. I mean, these staff who have been operating at more than 100% with very to you know little to almost no support 
when I'm talking about the pressures on the healthcare infrastructure, it's not just the physical infrastructure, it's the teams and it's the personnel, because for, you know, for more than 75 days now, they've been carrying this load and this weight. And uh, they're not eating properly themselves, they're not drinking properly, they're not taking care of themselves, um, because they can't, they don't have time, they're not able to sleep. Uh, most of our teams from the north have been forcibly displaced to the south. So they too are also living in shelters. And obviously, when they're at work, they're worried about their families. And, and, and we've seen the images of people working in the hospitals, finding that their loved ones have been killed or injured whilst working in the hospitals um, or picking them up in the ambulances. So I want to just highlight that when we talk about the pressures and the strain on the healthcare system, it's it's really it's the people you know that have really taken um, such a toll and somehow continue to to push through and continue to try and take care of their patients um, in the most amazing ways. Yeah, it's really yeah. impressive what the I mean that what braver medical professionals are out there. I don't I don't think there are any. Yeah, I mean I can't even imagine being resource poor but also having i mean starvation conditions not having access to water to showers to toilets um that's just un unimaginable ryan and i have both worked in hospitals what we've considered very busy when like there's patients in the er and gurneys in the hallways and we're like yeah, this is really busy but like looking at like the the european gaza hospital it's a 370 bed hospital and there's over a thousand patients there, not to mention the 70,000 people I saw sheltering there. It's just yeah. in, it's in, it's hard for our brains to wrap around. And Ryan in particular has worked in ERs and has seen really busy American ERs. And this is like a level that it's just hard for our, our it, it, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, my brain can't do it. It's like, there's a certain amount of money my brain doesn't understand. Like if my yeah. brain can't calculate it in like the terms of how many whoppers that buys me, my brain doesn't understand it. It's like the same goes here. Like my brain cannot understand the amount of space in, in the, or how it's filled with the amount of people in such a small space. It, it yeah. must be an absolute nightmare. These numbers, I mean, you can say them, you can hear them, but yeah, I don't think I can actually really comprehend like there's 2 million people and there's two functional hospitals and what a nightmare. I don't think even really the teams on the ground until everything stops really be able to understand what it is that they've been through themselves. You know, they're literally running on adrenaline, just trying to get from one minute to the next. So I, I think you know, and and this is the thing, like we can't begin to imagine what day two looks like when when that hopefully, you know, happens and that there is a permanent ceasefire and humanitarian aid and and skill sets and doctors are able to come in to assist. We don't we can't even begin to imagine what that looks like. You know, we, we talk a lot about moral injury and burnout here on the show of medical professionals, but I mean what the medical professionals there are going to experience that. Um, I think that is on a different level. I mean, it really, honestly, I can't even imagine this, the psych, the psychological damage to this is going to be generational. I mean, I can't imagine, um, I can't, I can't imagine anyone in Gaza, particularly a medical professional leaving this without needing, requiring psychological assistance and counseling. I just can't imagine that's ever going to happen. It, it should be, 
mandatory. Is there, are there any, I mean, I know that there, there, I, I, from my understanding, there was limited resources for psychiatric care to begin with. And I assume that most of those, if not all of those psychiatric hospitals have shut down. Is there resources there specifically for psychiatric care right now? Or is there anything that can be offered? Yes. I mean, so there was definitely before the seventh, but that's one of the things that our teams actually do very well. So our teams essentially focus on, we have our emergency response teams, uh, which consist of our paramedics uh, and some of our emergency doctors that are the first ones to arrive on the scene. They triage, et cetera. Then they make the appropriate referrals if necessary. And then we have our mobile uh, clinic and mobile outreach teams, which does uh, consist of psychosocial um, health support. And we have done that for a few years now as part of our comprehensive primary healthcare model, mm -hmm. where we have uh, a psychologists or psychiatrists, we have social workers, uh, we have um, village uh, health workers as well. So all of our teams, actually, all of our medical staff that are on the ground and patient facing actually all go through a... Um, mental health training so even if you're a women's health doctor for example you've gone through the mental health training to understand you know what signs to look for and what to pick up on and and when to make the necessary referrals uh, we've done that uh, specifically to to ensure that we are strengthening that aspect of the healthcare system and the other really important thing that we do is uh, first aid mental health training sort of capacity building within the communities. We do a lot of work with community-based organizations. So youth groups, uh, women-based organizations, and other community-based organizations. So where we can, we apply this capacity building training to start to essentially build the, the mental health literacy of people in Palestine, because there is there are socio-cultural sort of norms and potentially barriers to mental health or just understanding mental health the way that we have come to understand it. And I think generally, you know, globally, we still have a long way to go. Um, but this sort of health education and awareness that was happening before the seventh is really important because there's no use a health provider going in and having these conversations if the actual communities or the individuals themselves aren't sort of um, educated or primed to receive that type of information. So we have been doing that for a while now and we're still doing that. And it's one of the things actually that we started to have running at the very beginning was a hotline called Shabab Shabak, uh, where people could call and we had our teams ready to be able to offer uh, mental health support and also support for women and for women's health. And a lot of the calls that we were receiving in the initial days when communication was still uh, accessible to people in Gaza because the teams were set up in uh, the West Bank, um, we received thousands of calls specifically for mental health. So the other thing is, and I think this is a really strong indicator, is that before the 7th of October, many people in Gaza, many of our, our beneficiaries and our patients were specifically asking for more mental health programming, which I think is really positive because it shows an awareness, a self-awareness, and also just an awareness that the situation they're in is not okay and not sustainable and that they needed that, that support. So we continue to do that in the shelters with our mobile um, clinics. And it's obviously very difficult at the moment, uh, but it's so important and we have it for the staff as well. I don't think 
you know, at this point in time, the staff in Gaza are have the capacity or space to debrief. But to your point, I think this is a really important thing that for anyone who is thinking about how can I help and, and how can we support the recovery? I think mental health really needs to be a really big piece of that puzzle. And I, I worry about the skill sets that we might lose from the medical personnel who have been through everything that when it stops or there's a chance to take a breath, that's when the trauma sets in. And that's when, you know, they might not be able to work because of everything that they're dealing with. And and quite rightly, I mean, who could who could yeah. blame them? It's a concern because there's another type of brain drain that might happen uh, within the medical field because we know that hundreds of them have been killed now. There's um, <clears throat> more than 100 that have been abducted and goodness knows what's happened to them. And then we have to deal with this reality that that they might not be able to, to work the way that they were working before or during this disaster. Yeah, I've, <clears throat> I've read that um, this is this is as of December 1st, I had read that more than 250 healthcare workers, uh, 92 doctors slash medical students, including at least 16 that were on duty at the time, have been killed. Um, 53 ambulances destroyed as well. Um, that's stuff I got from the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. So, I mean, I assume it's more than that at this point. That That is a really interesting point, the long-term effects of this and how, how you're going to how Palestine will lose those people. They're not, they're either going to leave or they're just not going to be able to work anymore. I mean, that's just, I can't imagine going through this, even when things are all said and done and then them continuing to go back to work as a doctor or a nurse in that situation. I, I mean, they'll all need to take breaks if, at the very least leave, do something else. There's going to be, it's going to be a shift that's going to make our post COVID sort of shuffle here seem uh, completely insignificant. It's, it's going yeah, to be I mean, wild. even if you could imagine a, a best case scenario going forward here with the loss of infrastructure, facilities, all of that, I mean, losing that kind of education and, and training and expertise is something that is probably going to be irreplaceable in the next, I don't know, um, however long. Speaking of however long, God, I don't know how to make a transition here. Commercials. We'll be right back. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And we're back. 
So uh, let's talk a little bit now about the infectious diseases that we're seeing. So, and correct me again if I'm if I don't have the right information or most up to date information. Uh, and I know this is all going to be hard to do because disease surveillance systems are limited, obviously. But it's been seen that there's already an increase in infectious diseases. Over 100,000 cases of diarrhea have been reported. And as you mentioned, a lot of these we're seeing in younger uh, kids under five. Um, there's meningitis, upper, upper respiratory infections, scabies, lice. Uh, and in the shelters in the south, they're also reporting jaundice, which we all know is yellowing of the skin that happens with uh, hepatitis or, or liver injury. And that that's concerning for what probably is my guess is uh, uh, hepatitis A and E. Um, and E in particular is concerning for pregnant women, uh, of which they're already at risk in these situations. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you're, we're hearing and what we know of the infectious diseases that are now sort of starting to build and run rampant? Um, I, I don't know if I can tell you more, to be honest, just because the the information is, is so hard to get a hold of. But I can definitely confirm that you know, these types of infections are definitely being seen. And it's uh, I, I believe hepatitis A um, is definitely one of the main sort of culprits of um, jaundice and, and the other issues. There's, you know, there's really huge concerns that there, there could very well be cholera outbreaks and um you know it's just the, one of the issues is is also just the lack of ability to be able to test and the you know to, to have the correct lab regions and, and lab supplies uh they are in severe shortage as well so they're usually going to be used for more serious and i hate to say that because obviously it is life-threatening obviously to be in this situation especially when we can't rehydrate the patients but yeah. usually the you know the lab supplies are going to be used for you know, post post-surgical um potentially to save limbs and and all that sort of stuff so um but but definitely there has been an influx of infections and a well a proliferation of infectious diseases and things that we just never saw like scabies for example um you know obviously there's there's chicken pox as well lice because of the close living quarters the lack of access to sanitation and clean water uh also of concern is the lack of vaccinations um that are occurring now because of the lack of supplies and just to be able to tend to these types of um primary health care you know what's normally routine everyone is in a crisis emergency state and responding to the emergencies as they emerge uh so vaccinations uh have also been an issue and it's i mean it's really scary because you have at least between 5000 to 5500 newborns every month uh being delivered who don't uh have access to medical care and they don't have access to vaccinations and so we might very well see uh an increase or even just an emergence of diseases that we like measles, for example, that we just normally would not have seen uh, before because of this. Yeah. You know, it, it's funny because you, 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 we've talked about now a couple of times, the diarrhea and kids and, you know, I, I've seen it downplayed <laughs> uh, and it's, it's not as, you know, dramatic as being crushed by a building, but 
I mean, these cases can be deadly in young kids. You know, in a regular month in Gaza, I saw that kids under five, there would be about 2,000 cases of diarrhea reported. And in the last month, there was over 40,000 cases in that same age group. Um, yeah. th this can be, you know, without the right support and the right systems in place, it's, I mean, I'm worried about what's going to happen to these kids, like cognitive yeah. growth developments. Yeah. Um, exactly. I mean, without even having access to water, that there's not going to be any way to keep up with this. No, and I think something that has been really severely underlooked as well is sort of that you need for children, especially under 12 months, you need clean water. You either need it for the, the babies so that they can have their formula or you need it for the mothers so that they can hydrate so that they're able to breastfeed. And there are issues emerging now with women not being able to breastfeed because they're so severely malnourished and anemic and dehydrated and you know it's really scary that there's 5,500 newborns plus all of the children that are under one who don't have access to clean water or, or milk or any sort of hydration I don't think people sort of put two and two together that even if the mom is breastfeeding there's still a need for water yeah. um, even if you're not doing the formula route you need water um, to be able to hydrate and that's their that's their their whole nutrition under one so um and i've read that in humanitarian crisis situations it's been recommended that you have about seven to eight liters of water per day per person um but it sounds like these refugees are closer to maybe one to two liters at, at best um maybe and that's usually within a family to be completely honest it's, oh it's not even per person it's yeah and this That's is all her family the, the and they're funny, big families. The thing about this too, is that we're talking about these particular illnesses and this, this healthcare crisis that's happening there, but we're not even talking about the patients with like diabetes, hypertension, cancer, women that have to give exactly. cesareans, you know, have to have a cesarean section for their delivery. Um, it's, it's, it's so hard. So let me ask you this. It sounds like the problem isn't that there aren't supplies to be given. It's not that the world hasn't wanted to support and give supplies. It sounds like the problem is getting the supplies to them. Can you explain this to us? Yes. Yes. So exactly right. There is a lot of international support and a lot of people that have mobilized to try to get the supplies into Gaza. And there are hundreds of trucks that are stuck outside uh, the border in Rafah, uh, sorry, on the Egyptian side in Arij. Uh, and they're not allowed to enter. Technically, Egypt should be the one that controls that border. But at the moment, Israel is controlling that border. And they are not allowing the humanitarian trucks to enter. What can be done about it? I mean, if someone wanted to support or help somehow... Uh, put pressure in the right places. What is something that people can do? What what can people listening, how can they contribute in any way, either financially or with their time? Yes. So I think the first important uh, step is just to continue to advocate and continue to apply pressure on your local governments and your representatives 
um, to, you know, to try to draw attention to the reality of what is happening on the ground. Um, <clears throat> you know, unfortunately, we've seen that even the United Nations uh, doesn't have any sort of um, decision-making power with respect to forcing the issue and forcing the supplies in. But I think that it's really important that people don't give up and don't lose hope and that they continue to apply pressure and to advocate. So, for example, on the PMRS Instagram uh, page, we have a link to um, so many different petitions and there's templates to letters to send to various representatives and it's categorized by country. So we have for Canada, we have for the UK, we have for the US, um, we have for Australia. And most of these times, these petitions or these letters are, are it's already written. It's pretty easy. It's just a template and you just submit it, um, essentially asking for, for this representative to um, to pay attention and that you as a constituent are asking for X, Y, Z. So I think that's important and to continue that. I think it's really important to continue if you are on social media in any way. It doesn't matter how small your accounts are just to continue to elevate and to amplify Palestinian voices. And if you're specifically focused on healthcare, there are a number of, of, of medical uh, representatives like PMRS, uh, like um, the Health Workers for Palestine Coalition, uh, like Dr. Ghassan Abu Sitta, who um, was in, in Gaza up until very recently, and these other medical organizations that are there on the ground, Medical Aid for Palestine, Médecins Sans Frontières, etc. And I think if you're then wanting to take it further, connect with these healthcare groups and coalitions that are forming globally now, it's really gaining a lot of momentum. Um, go to the vigils that they're organizing or, you know, if there's some sort of rally, etc. I think this is really important just to continue that to, to push for our voices to be heard and to represent the medical professionals that are in Palestine right now and in Gaza. And then from a fundraising perspective, uh, you know, PMRS, we have a, a fundraiser active, again, via Instagram uh, to raise funds specifically for the emergency response in Gaza. And uh, a lot of the organizations that I just mentioned are are also fundraising. And I think a, a question that comes up quite often, and Dr. Barghouti, our founder and president, um, answered this the other day on Dr. Ahmed's podcast. You know, people are concerned because the supplies aren't able to get in. So what's the point of fundraising? But at the moment, we're using that funding to be able to mobilize more teams, to gather more teams, to be able to to pay for for their salaries, to be able to organize them on the ground based on the supplies and the access that we do have. And then we also need to consider that these borders can can open and shut very quickly. So we need to be prepared with the supplies, with the funding es essentially to be able to facilitate the procurement and be ready on the sideline mm -hmm. outside the border to be able to then get these supplies in when they do open. Um, and often it's a very small window and we need to be able to act really quickly so that's really important i would also just add for anyone who's listening to try to just get informed um i mean i know that this war gets gets tons of coverage but a lot of these things like the infectious diseases the fact that more than 25 percent of gazans 
are currently starving um, are things that like I haven't really seen it and didn't know until I was trying to look look stuff up before this this episode. Um, so I mean, I think like we think of war in terms of casualties, um, but thinking of of massive disease outbreaks and and preventable healthcare disasters is, is something that I don't think people are really thinking about right now. I've seen even higher in terms of the starvation. I don't know. Uh, I saw at least 93% of the population is facing crisis levels of hunger. I don't know if that probably doesn't meet starvation criteria, but I mean, it's, it's, it really is catastrophic. Where, where can like Ryan myself and our listeners, what are good resources for us to, to get data? I know it's really hard. I know we, it's hard to get good information, but where should we look so there's a really great website uh, called Relief Web, and you can filter it to the Palestine page. So it's OPT, the Occupied Palestinian Territories. And basically, this holds reports and information from all of the actors on the ground. So you will see reports from um, the Red Crescent, from the World Health Organization, uh, from OCHA, so the Coordination uh, Office, Humanitarian Coordination Office, which is the UN agency. And uh, I think it's really important just to highlight as well that that the World Health Organization reports that are being shared essentially pull data from all of the actors on the ground, including PMRS and all of the other uh, local organizations that are working within the healthcare sector because they lead uh, what's called the health cluster. And everyone that is on the ground working within the healthcare sector feed through on a weekly basis uh, their information. And so they, they're collecting this information. And, and this is how we're able to start to see what the reality is. That's great. Thank you so much. Amira, this has been really eye-opening. Um, I think both Ryan and myself, we've learned a ton from, yeah. from you here we really appreciate your time um i think you've given us all the uh the important sites and and plugs but uh, is there anything else you'd like to plug before we leave or some place that people could find out more about your work in particular yes i i would just draw attention to the palestinian medical relief society's instagram page is probably our, our most active uh social media page and and best way to contact us as well if you have any questions or a lot of people have contacted us wanting to volunteer in some way we are taking we have some online volunteers already and we're pulling together a database of medical professionals that might want to come and volunteer with us we have our fundraiser as i said and we also have the links to all of the different ways that uh, people can advocate and uh, i just strongly request that when people are thinking about where to donate or where to support that they do consider supporting a Palestinian organization and uh, it doesn't have to be PMRS obviously I'd love that if they did support PMRS but I think it's really important that Palestinian organizations are being supported in this context because there's a lot of support for the UN and other international NGOs however it's 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 our people that are not only working under the occupation and working under these conditions, but they're living it and this is their lives. And I think it's really important to strengthen the healthcare sector in Palestine that these organizations, Palestinian organizations, are being supported. Excellent. Ryan, um, you're one of the 
five reasons anyone should be on Twitter at this point. Um, so if you aren't following him on Twitter, please follow Ryan at, is it, what is it again? Ryan Marino? Just Ryan Marino, right? Yeah, but don't look me up. Go look up the Palestinian Medical Relief Society and go look at the World Health Organization page. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay, yeah, don't worry about us. Um, thank you so much for listening, everyone. Uh, let's see, any last closing things? Oh, I apologize to my American listeners. Uh, XYZ is XYZ. I'm sorry about that. I'm, I apologize. It's going to cause a lot of confusion, Amira. Um, sorry. <laughs> thank you both so much. Really appreciate it, Amira. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> I don't know if this is a, a good time for me to jump in. <laughs> but, uh, Amira, um, it, but never, I'm here. <laughs> it never gets any less weird. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.